Engaging Leader, Episode 35, Infectious, How to Connect Deeply and Unleash the Energetic Leader Within You. Does your leadership inspire trust, passion, and action? Welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast with Jesse Leahy, consultant, writer, and speaker. Jesse has helped executives engage hundreds of thousands of people. Join us now for principles to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Welcome to the show, leaders. Do you connect deeply with others? Do you inspire people? Do you leave a lasting impression? Beyond strategy, beyond business expertise, what people ultimately respond to is you, your energy, your vision, your ability to move hearts and souls. To help us expand our leadership influence, our guest today is Akeem Nowak. He is the author of the book, Infectious, How to Connect Deeply and Unleash the Energetic Leader Within. Akeem leads a firm called Influenz, an international training and coaching company founded in 2004. Prior to that, he served for over a decade on the faculty of New York University, where he also studied organizational psychology and international relations. Akeem, welcome to The Engaging Leader. Hi, Jesse. Why did you write a leadership book about infectious energy? About eight years ago, I wrote a book uh, called Power Speaking, and people consider me an expert on, on speaking and leadership presence, so very often... Folks call my firm and me and say, can you help so-and-so with their leadership presence? And I love that word leadership presence, but it's also a code word for a lot of things that, that it's hard to put words onto. And when I really drill down, very often what, what folks want me to look at is, is why folks don't connect so well with colleagues, with their teammates, why they don't know how to motivate and engage people. And so when I wrote Infectious, I really want to think is, so what is it that good connectors do really well? And what can we learn from people that connect really well? So the starting point was really the kind of questions that come up in my practice as an executive coach. You kick off your book with this great story about five executives at a cocktail party. And it features Alex Sandy Pentland, who I, mm-hmm. I just by coincidence, only a couple weeks ago, heard an interview with him. And so I was immediately sucked into your book. Could you share that story about the the five executives? Yeah, this is research that was conducted by Alex Sandy Pentland and Daniel Olguin at MIT. They have a wonderful place called the Human Dynamics Lab. And uh, this research really sort of substantiated something that I see in my practice as an executive coach all the time. They took these five executives that you mentioned And these five had to do competitive pitches in front of a committee. And the winning businessman was going to get a good chunk of money for a business project. And what they did is three days before at a cocktail party, they measured what they call their vital signals or Arnold signals. And those are really kind of how much we sweat, how much we gesture, how close we move to people, how much energy we have, like all of the unspoken things that we send out. They call them vital signals, and they say that this is very unique to human beings because we uh, organize ourselves socially in relationship to these signals that we receive. And these signals go deeper than traditional body language, which we've talked about for years. And upon measuring the, the vital signals of these five individuals, 
they said, we know who's going to win this pitch on Friday. And they correctly predicted the winner. What sorts of things were they looking for when they were evaluating the, the behavior of these five executives? How in the world could they predict that outcome so accurately? When Sandy Pentland was interviewed in the Harvard Business Review, they said, so what's the one thing that you discovered that distinguishes the most successful person? And Pentland said is personal energy. So the, the devices they used measured all of these unspoken things that are hard to quantify. And on a gut level as a coach, that completely made sense to me. But the challenge then is, is how do we work with all of the unspoken elements that are significant success determinators? So when I wrote Infectious, I said, I, I know what we say matters, but the unspoken things because I really second the research that was done at MIT, the unspoken things matter more. And the folks who are successful leaders and communicators know how to work well with the unspoken elements of a connection. And that's what I really dive into in my book, Infectious. This research by the MIT Human Dynamics Lab basically said it may be hard to describe, but we can certainly measure it quantitatively. In your book, you're actually then putting some words and some how-tos and some tips behind mm -hmm. creating that infectious energy. I talk about five basic principles that apply to connecting really well with people in the spoken realm. But the three, the deeper levels, the unspoken levels for me have to do, and the second one is, is how I understand my personal power and use it well and how I play with the power of other people. The third level is my relationship to intent and how I use intent consciously and also how I accept the intent of other people. But the deepest level at which connections happen or don't happen is the energy level. So I talk about how we can access energy consciously and again, how we play better with the energy of other people. So these last three levels, power, intent, and energy, those are the unspoken levels at which we get to the deeper connections with folks. My premise is, and it's really based on the work I do, that the moment I connect more deeply with folks, folks are more motivated by me, more engaged with me, and they're going to work harder. You know, it's going to create more success for all of us. When you say the ability to connect, you're not talking about networking or communicating, are you? I'm talking about the ability to stir people, to get people excited about something. So yeah, I'm not talking about the kind of quick connections that, that are important in a networking event, but they just lead to the next phone call. So I'm not talking about sales situations. I'm talking about deeply engaging clients, deeply engaging your team, deeply motivating and engaging your colleagues. So, so they want to work with you. They want to follow you. Now, in your book, as you mentioned, you talk about four levels of connection, the first mm -hmm. one being language. Can you give us an example of a, a technique that works at that top level? I think you're talking about that language level of connection. The most sophisticated technique I talk about is the ability to elegantly reframe conversations. And we talk about six different reframing questions. And these are questions that we can ask when a conversation is stuck and not flowing. And instead of doing battle with a person, a reframing question elegantly shifts a conversation to a new direction. It's a wonderfully sophisticated technique. It's invisible. Like you, Jesse, wouldn't know that I'm reframing the conversation. But it's a way of really powerfully uh, influencing where we go with something. 
So on one end, we start with something very simple like adjectives to something much more sophisticated, like the ability to frame and reframe conversations. Now, reframing a conversation sounds similar to changing the subject, but I, as you say, it's, it's, more, it's definitely more sophisticated and elegant. Can you give an example of how that might work? We talk about six different techniques. Let me give you just a very simple one. I call it widening the lens. You know, so if I'm talking to to you for Jesse, and I'm going to give you a Miami example because I live in the Miami area. And let's say we're talking about real estate in Miami. And you keep you keep just hammering away about how real estate prices are rising so rapidly in Miami, and that's all you're focusing on. And I feel like we're having this very narrow conversation. One option I have is to disagree with you, and we can start a little fight, or widening the lens would just mean asking a question like, Jesse, how, how do you think real estate prices in Miami compared to real estate prices in the rest of the country? And see what I'm doing? I'm steering you away from Miami. I'm not saying that you're wrong, but I'm widening the conversation to a more broader focus. And it's very elegant. You, Jesse, probably don't even notice that I'm broadening the conversation, but it's a masterful way of changing the flow of things instead of getting stuck somewhere. So, and, and people who do this well really, really have a way of strategically moving conversations forward, which is an incredibly important skill for leaders. And then you also describe doing that there are, there are times when it's appropriate to do the opposite, to narrow the lens. Mm-hmm. Well, for example, if, if, if somebody is throwing sweeping generalities at us about a topic, my mind just goes, let's say, in, I work with a lot of global corporations and people love to complain about HR and human resources and they don't like this and they don't like that. And all, you know, let's just say somebody's generalizing about that. One way of getting away from sweeping generalizations, you say, well, what is one specific thing that your HR professional does that frustrates you the most? And you're focusing on one thing and you're getting rid of all the other stuff and you have a more focused conversation. So those are ways, again, of framing things that are very elegant without doing battle with a person. Instead of saying you're full of crap for not liking HR, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> you could say that and we're going to have a nice little fight. <laughs> and in the early 90s, my first career was in show business. I was an acting coach in New York. And then um, my first job after I, I switched out of that was uh, as a mediation skills trainer in New York City. And we were training students throughout the New York City public school system. And I was trained by lawyers to be a mediator. It was a three-day training. And those are all skills about shaping conversations. And I don't go into any of these skills in my book. But what I learned is when my teenagers that I was trained to be mediators learned these skills, they suddenly felt incredibly empowered because they knew how to, they had tools for shaping the conversations they had. They knew how to strategically move a conversation forward uh, because I learned some basic mediation tools. So the ability to, re- to reframe conversations, it's not a mediation skill, but it's a strategic way of, of feeling empowered to move conversations along. And people who do this well are much more successful in conversations. It's a simple tool and it can be learned. Well, that tool and several others in this part of the book talking about language I think are very mm-hmm. helpful in moving us beyond simple conversations to a richer, deeper, more energetic connection. This past weekend, I was at a family wedding and uh, where both sides of the family getting married were Catholic. And I had a cousin who was visiting from out of town who came in from California. And I had not seen her in the last several months, but in the meantime, I had heard that she and her husband 
we're uh, separating and we're probably going to get a divorce,、mm-hmm. which can be a painful topic, and、mm-hmm. especially given the the family background on 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 both sides of the family, could be a, a dicey subject. I forget how you say it in the book, but just because something is typically considered taboo, it can actually connect people if you're willing to. Discuss those in a in a helpful learning type of of manner, and so I went ahead and I thought about what you said, and I went ahead and started the conversation with her, and I said, "Hey, I I hadn't really talked to you since hearing about this. How do you feel about that?" And and I she immediately said, "Pretty crappy, actually." <laughs> and it was a, the start of a very rich conversation that、mm-hmm. really connected the two of us together. So I found. This part of the book, even though it's just the first level, and and you might say it's a、mm-hmm. superficial stuff, it's actually very helpful. I really appreciate you sharing that example, Jesse.、Uh, I I talk about the book because one of the things a lot of my clients are challenged with is how to show up at business dinners. You know, I well, last week I was at two business dinners, and you spend an hour and a half or two hours with people. In this case, it was a table of four, and we can kill two hours by superficial banter, and sometimes that's really nice, or we can take some risks. And、uh, one of the big lies I see perpetuated in business dinners all the time, and that's the social pressure, is to I call it the happy family conversation. Now, in, in most business companies, I would say nine out of ten people tell a happy family story over a business dinner. When we know that fifty percent of marriages are are unhappy and end in divorce, that's reality. That's borne out by <laughs> statistics. But you listen to business dinners; everybody is happily married.、Mm-hmm. So it's very interesting when somebody breaks. That code, for example, over the dinner that we had last Monday in Chicago,、uh, one of my colleagues talked about the fact that his son, number one, is gay and belongs to a pretty radical gay group, and that that troubled him. So that was a big social risk、mm-hmm. because he was there with our sponsor who hires him and me, and another HR director. Well, the HR director also revealed that her daughter is a lesbian and talked about that, and because Dan opened this door. You know, the other colleague, our sponsor, felt comfortable mentioning that her ex-husband was gay. So you see, there was a theme, and people sort of shared some things appropriately. I'm sure there are things that were not shared, but somebody opened that door to saying, you know, everything is not that perfect, in my family, and I am worried about my son. And it was a completely enjoyable dinner. And what happened is, when we left that dinner, I did not feel tired. And when I'm at a dinner where we just do what I call the fake conversations for an hour and a half, I'm exhausted. Right, because it actually takes more effort to have the fake conversation rather than take a few appropriate risks. And and what's an appropriate risk? Obviously, we each decide what that is. But I know in my own life, the more I take appropriate risks, the more rewarding my connections are with people. Isn't that something? Yeah. So you you have that deeper connection, and it actually creates more energy for pretty much everybody involved.、Mm-hmm. Now, the second level of connection is power, and this also. Struck me as fascinating. Some of the the topics that you cover, I'd heard elsewhere, but I really found it helpful that you broke down five different types of power that people may have. Can you explain what you mean by that? Sure. I want to start with a little story first, and then I'll talk about how I break power down.、Um, okay. My personal aha moment around power was this was a like long time ago. This is. 
I was still working as, as a theater director in show business. I had a rather successful career in New York, and I, I thought I, w- I was hot stuff, you know. And, <laughs> and for the first time in my life, in the, in, in the late 80s, I took a break, and I spent six weeks in Sedona, Arizona, to do a personal exploration retreat, to just stop and look at myself. And I'd never done that. I'd never seen a therapist. I never really looked at who I was. I, I was very much identified with being a successful theater director. There's a woman named Reverend Mona who ran this retreat center, and she looked at me at some point and she said, you know what? You need to stop being a doormat. And when she said that, she really pissed me off with that comment because <laughs> I thought I was – I had a good sense of myself. I was successful. The critics said I was good at what I did and all this stuff. But once I stepped back, I realized there were ways in which I played small, in which I didn't really understand my personal power. And what I got for the first time is because I wasn't comfortable with my power, I also didn't play well with the power of others. Now, a bunch of years later, I discovered that there are power models or ways of taking this very abstract concept of power and breaking it down into different power sources. So in Infectious, and this is work I do with a lot of my clients, I look at the different sources of power that we have, I call them power plugs, and we look at how we can plug well into them and use them well. And I firmly believe that if I plug into my sources of power well, I bring more to the table and I engage better with somebody else. And the five sources we look at is, is the obvious one is position power, relationship power, knowledge power, body power, and charisma power. We probably don't have time to get into all of them, so you can pick <laughs> any one of these. And I'll be happy to elaborate some more about how we actually play with these sources of power. Well, position power would be someone who has a certain level of authority. Either they're they're mm-hmm. a boss or they maybe have yeah. a, a political level. So I think that one we're a little more familiar with. And expertise or knowledge power is someone who is well-respected and gets a sense of authority from their level that they've achieved in life. Maybe they're a, a medical doctor. Mm-hmm. I have a colleague named Don Denvier who who is, is a training director of the United Nations, and she has a saying that really stuck with me. She said, "Is people want us to be the expert, and they resent us for being the expert, which meaning if I'm, if I'm an expert on something, if I own it too much, people can say I'm cocky and arrogant and I'm full of myself. Right. At the same time, I see people all the time who are experts at something, and they don't fully own it, which means they don't share it enough, and they're not of service enough to others because they play small around it. Right. So how to actually prop, how to properly own like I you know because I wrote a book on public speaking I'm considered an expert around the world on this stuff, but so there's still questions to be had when I talk about it how much do I talk about it how do much do I let other people talk about it because we all know about this anyway I'm not the only one who knows about this topic so it's not easy when it comes to talking to somebody else who has a lot of expertise power first thing I would say is overtly and shamelessly acknowledge that. Ask them for guidance. Acknowledge their, their, their expertise. Uh, allow them to help you. I've seen people, for example, who shrink around others with expert power. Instead of acknowledging it, we pretend that they don't have it. We don't draw on it. You know, This may sound very simple, but these dynamics get played out all the time. You also go into tips on relationship power, which would be someone who just has a, a great, they do a great job of connecting with other people and they have lots of mm-hmm. influential relationships. And uh, body power, somebody who has a, their health really where in good position or maybe has a glamorous body. Uh, am I describing that correctly? 
Well, that was the hardest one to write about because I, the power plugs model I developed with a psychologist in Miami, Dr. Margarita Guri, and we really kicked this one around because talking about body power tends to make people very uncomfortable because it's about attractiveness or the perception of attractiveness, but also health and the perception of health. And let's talk about somebody who's very physically attractive uh, by, let's say, mainstream standards. Um, I see people do two things. Either we tend to gravitate toward them because we want to be around them because we're attracted to them, or we can get very competitive with them and totally shun them. The perception is that folks who are very physically attractive have it easier, but they have to make decisions about how they own their attractiveness and their power. And if we don't feel similarly about our body power, uh, they can easily feel pe people can easily shrink and become smaller about how they show up. I'm somebody, for example, if, if, I'm, if I have the flu for three weeks, if I don't feel well, I feel less powerful. I don't engage as well with people. I don't have a magic answer around it, but it's very, it's, it's, the impact this has on us is profound. Um, so we need to figure this one out. And I go some tips about how to play well with our body power. And it's not about attaining some standard of beauty. It's not about this, our relationship to it. But also, if we, if we talk to people who, are, who exude a lot of body power, there are probably some values behind it, and we can play with them and engage with those values they place on it, which will deepen our connection with them. I think that rings true, and I've already had one conversation with a friend on that topic of body power, and they, they agreed. It is a difficult thing to talk about, and it feels sort of superficial, but I think it's a reality that both you may have some body power, you may be able to, to use your own body power better, but certainly we've all been in situations where we're intimidated or maybe jealous or for whatever reason having a difficult mm -hmm. time connecting with somebody because of their physical attractiveness. Those of us who have looked at our sources of power and relate to them well always connect better with folks than those of us who haven't looked at it. So we're getting to the unspoken blocks of barriers, and that's one reason to look at it. Folks who are comfortable with their own power just connect better with other people, and the connections tend to go deeper. The third level of connection is intent. And you talk about how we can sometimes play a role, either professionally or socially. And when we do that without clean intent, there's a risk there. Can you explain that? Yeah, I'm glad you asked about intent. You know, in the last 20 years or so, a lot's been written about the power of intention in public life. Wayne Dyer is an author who's done some amazing writing on this, whose work I highly recommend. But I'm really interested as somebody who coaches successful people on how we show up intent moment by moment. And the hardest thing to talk about when it comes to intent is how we inhabit the, I call it the role of the professional. An example I give you, I'm going to just mention a woman named Maria, who I mentioned in the book, and I have this this example all the time where I'm talking to somebody, um, let's say in the hallway or cafeteria, and we're having a silly little chat about absolutely nothing. And 15 minutes later, I may be with Maria in a business meeting, and Maria has to make an announcement about something. And I'd say eight out of ten times, Maria acts differently. And the fact that we act different in different social settings is a good thing. But Maria likely acts in what she believes to be how she should act as a professional. And I call it about stepping into the professional blueprint. But most folks I see is have, we have not really consciously examined what it means to step into the professional role. So we step into it with our conscious intent. And this is the part that's most frustrating for me. For most of us, 
stepping into the role of the professional with our conscious intent means we show up diminished. You know, we step into what I call the professional box. We show less of who we are because we have this unspoken blueprints about what it means to be a professional. So what I invite all of us to do, and this is a big part of the work I do with folks that coach, is have fun and play with how you show up in different social situations. Make conscious decisions rather than stepping into the box of the perfect professional, which is always a limiting box. If you're going to step into a professional role in a given situation, what is a less limiting way to do that? Well, the starting point is to be aware of what we do when we are on, when we're the center of attention. And if there is a very big switch or gap between how we show up in a professional role versus when we're off stage, then we're probably overcompensating. So I would say first thing is be aware, do you change yourself a lot when you're in a meeting, when you give a speech, then you're probably overcompensating, you're stepping to a professional role that, that is too divorced from who you really are. So notice the gap. The other stuff that a lot of us tend to take away when we don't examine the professional world, we, we tend to take away having a clear opinion, a clear point of view. We tend to water down what we really think or feel because we think it's too risky to say that. Uh, and I think leaders who are more successful are not afraid of owning their point of view. They do it responsibly and appropriately, and they make conscious decisions around it. So I cannot tell you how to play the professional role but make some decisions about it that are authentic for you and that are not limiting to who you really are and what you really think and believe. I like that. And I, I like in the book you provide some definite tips for how to make sure, well, at least how to have the intent that you're creating the impact that you want and that mm -hmm. you have the tone that you want. And then, of course, as we've just been talking about, that you have the role that you want to play. Yeah, if I may just, just tease the listeners for a moment, I'm not going into the details because I was an acting coach for many years at some big acting studios in New York. Uh, actors work a lot with intent, and there's some very specific techniques that actors use to shape the intent when they engage with another actor. And in, in Infectious, I take some of these techniques and relate them to how you can play with the same intents in a business situation. And they really translate beautifully and they really sharpen the impact we have in situations. And it's very simple, and it's very powerful. When you get to that last topic of energy, mm -hmm. it's almost overlapping with what some might call new age principles. And I, I wonder, mm -hmm. does that, do you have uh, clients that when you are getting to that point of energy, what, what kind of feedback do you get? Does, does it, is it a struggle sometimes to get them to pay attention or, or believe what you have to say? Well, the traditional conversation we have about personal energy uh, is still based on the Jungian notion that some of us are introverts and some of us are extroverts. And the notion is that introverts tend to get most of their energy from their thoughts and ideas, from being private, from quiet time, that extroverts tend to draw energy from other people. I find this notion completely limiting and not helpful at all. And all I offer in the book is they're all over the world. Other countries and cultures have a very different notion of energy. Most countries play with the notion that there is something called a life force, like a big innate energy that we all have. There are actually almost a hundred different terms for the idea of a life force all over the world. So in India, people call it prana, the Chinese call it chi, the Japanese call it ki. And there are very specific techniques for accessing this, what I call bigger energy. And all I do in the book is mention some of the different approaches, and I invite people to look at which ones work for you. But the, the main message is this 
what I call the big energy, which all other non-Western cultures talk about, is available to everybody, and it's available to introverts and to extroverts. So instead of being stuck in this very limiting introvert-extrovert dichotomy, which just keeps us limited in our thinking about energy, I invite all of us to look at what the bigger energy is, and then I talk about specific ways of accessing those, and they're very specific techniques. Which ones you choose to pursue, well, that's up to you. You, I think in the book, you actually mentioned that at least in your younger days, you would have been considered an, an introvert. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yes. And yet, many of the, through many of the stories in the book, I can tell that you connect with people at an, at an energetic level and that, that probably recognizing that you can connect energetically with other people, regardless of introverted or extroverted, I think that would be empowering to a lot of people. Yeah. There's, in the last few years, a lot's been written about the fact that we are in a business culture that celebrates teamwork and collaboration, which requires social engagement with others, and that we don't spend enough time on honoring and valuing the quiet private time that people need to get work done, which tends to be the the strong area of so-called introverts. And I say that because I don't like those labels. I don't (laughs) think they're helpful. But here's the deal, because I'm a writer. So that when I write, I, I am completely in introvert mode. You know, it's me, my thoughts, my ideas, and my computer. And I love that. But the moment I engage with a client outside, uh, it does not help for me to stay in introvert mode. So I need to find ways of, of meaningfully engaging with another person. And the reality of the business world are, and I agree with the accesses, that we have too much emphasis on teamwork and constant engagement. But at some point, if you're going to have a one-on-one conversation with me, please find a way of engaging with me. We've been talking to Akeem Nowak. He is the author of the book, Infectious, How to Connect Deeply and Unleash the Energetic Leader Within. And we've been looking at four levels of connection, language, power, intent, and energy. Akeem leads a firm called Influence, an international training and coaching company he founded in 2004. Akeem, you mentioned a weekly message you sent out called the Energy Boost. Can you share with us how our listeners could sign up for that? You can just go to my website. It's www.influence, and I'll spell that because it's the Latin origin of influence. So my business is actually called influence.com. And you can sign up and get a a weekly message called Energy Boost. And it gives you some very specific tools for working more deeply with the concepts of my book, Infectious. Wonderful. Well, Akeem, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. It was great to talk to you, Jesse. We'll provide a link to Akeem's book and his firm's website in our show notes for this episode, which you can find at engagingleader.com forward slash 35. That's also where you can ask questions or share your thoughts, as well as get information for connecting with Akeem or me on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter. A big thank you to David J. Solar for your kind review on iTunes. David is the host of the Relationship Marketing and Sales Podcast, and I encourage everyone to check that out on iTunes. And while you're there, please consider providing a written iTunes review for the Engaging Leader Podcast. That will help other people discover our show. In iTunes, just search for Engaging Leader. Don't miss our next episode. We'll be talking to author and communication expert Stacy Hunky about four ways to improve our face-to-face communication to better influence people to take action. This is a production of Asmodale Communications, a consulting firm where my colleagues and I partner with mid-size and large employers to attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results. 
Our thanks to Joe Sherwood, our producer, James Marler, our sound engineer, Rick Tarrant, our announcer, and Christopher Seal, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, whether you realize it or not, you are always communicating and leading. Let's make the most of our opportunities to engage the people we care about. Thank you.